Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. If it sounds a little different, it's because I am broadcasting from Dallas, Texas at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Convention, uh, their annual meeting uh, here related to, well, what we remember as the Church Two movement, acknowledging that unfortunately, um, grievously, women and men have been sexually assaulted in the context of the Christian Church. And This uh, national uh, conference is an attempt to address that. It's called Caring Well. We have talked on earlier occasions with Brad Hambrick here uh, about the Caring Well curriculum. We have talked uh, about the Caring Well conference, and you can actually participate if you want to live stream it um, wherever you are today and tomorrow. It's live.erlc.com. So the word live and then .erlc.com. I want to lead off with this. Yesterday we were celebrating an act of total redemptive grace that took place in a Dallas courtroom on Wednesday. There, uh, the, the Associated Press is now reporting that what we discussed as an act of redemptive grace worthy of celebration, um, others are saying is worthy of punishment, not praise. So maybe not surprising uh, and yet really disappointing. The... Um, Freedom from Religion Foundation has filed a grievance uh, asking for judicial misconduct investigation after Judge Tammy Kemp um, took the extraordinary step in the closing moments of the trial of a former Dallas police officer who fatally shot her black neighbor. So as Amber Geiger was being taken away to serve 10 years in prison, um, not only did uh, did the victim's brother, 18-year-old brother, give just an incredible testimony uh, about forgiveness and not only his personal forgiveness of Amber, but also his desire for her to use the time that she's going to have in prison to really seek the Lord and receive forgiveness from him. But then Judge Tammy Kemp, uh, following the trial, following the sentencing, Uh, Before Amber Geiger was led from the courtroom uh, off to prison, the judge descended from the bench, uh, gave Amber a hug and a Bible. And while some of us uh, recognize that that was an incredible demonstration of of grace, others are saying that it crossed an ethical line, and the Freedom from Religion Foundation is now asking for a judicial misconduct investigation. Now, here's the good news. The Dallas County District Attorney— Uh, Craig Watkins, who was once Kemp's boss, and in 2006 actually became the first black elected district attorney in all of the state of Texas, in all of Texas history. Um, By the way, this judge, Tammy, uh, is also uh, African-American. And and he said he said this of her. Look, it's just her Christian nature. Um, And he said, you're you're having people of color that are having the opportunity 
to become judges and it's their life experience and their religious point of view. It's different than maybe what you have seen in the past. Um, and it's a positive evolution of the, of the judicial system. So this is going to be an interesting conversation because the sister attorney is saying that not only is this a part of her Christian nature, but as an African-American, it's, it's a part of, of who she is culturally as an American. That is a fascinating um, part of this um, discussion as well. So I want you to be lifting this up today. The Freedom From Religion Foundation is a secular Wisconsin-based group. They routinely file lawsuits challenging religious displays uh, of every kind, and they have accused this judge of proselytizing from the bench. That is the charge they have raised. Um, and so uh, let's uh, let's just wow, let's just be praying for this today. Lots of conversations to be had today about religious liberty and religious freedom here in the United States of America. So up next, Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com, and he'll be with me in just a moment. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. You can follow him at mthawk on Twitter. You can also find him at matthewthawkins.com. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you very much, Carmen. Glad to, glad right, to I'm gonna, hanging out with my old friends at the ERLC at their conference this week. I am. I am. They're best. doing. I will. I shall. Um, I saw some of your uh, DC colleagues here yesterday, so I'll be sure yeah. and uh, and let them know that we had a conversation today. Really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to let you carry the the bulk of this conversation because um, you actually probably have a better connection to the studio this morning than I do, which is kind right. of curious. But um, so <laughs> bring us up up to date uh, on this University of Iowa versus InterVarsity. The situation has been resolved. I think people will be really interested to hear about this. Yeah, yeah. So um, for those of you who hadn't uh, maybe seen this, uh, InterVarsity um, is a student group uh, with uh, – Groups, uh, student Bible study groups, basically all over, uh, at least the U.S. And uh, among other groups, they're not the first one. We talked about um, Young Life uh, being excluded as a qualified student group from Duke University um, a few weeks ago, and uh, this one involves InterVarsity at the um, University of Iowa. And the short of it is, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Stephanie Rose issued a ruling that uh, basically defended InterVarsity uh, and said the University of, of, of Iowa can't force InterVarsity Christian Fellowship to allow for non-Christian student leaders. So this is kind of this, this conflict um, that we see in the general trend of um, LGBT rights and uh, religious freedom, uh, particularly for conservative uh, Christian folks who um, abide by a view of Christian ethics that includes one man, one woman marriage. And InterVarsity as a student group, as a Christian student group, naturally wants to populate its staff or and its leadership including students on campus with Christians and people who hold their same beliefs. This is not an anomaly. Uh, you wouldn't expect Demo a Democratic student club to include Republicans among its ranks or vice versa. And uh, presumably we wish for uh, Jewish groups and Muslim groups to uh, uh, keep, keep leadership that share their particular religious views. Uh, so Iowa was extremely discriminatory 
against InterVarsity. And not only that, uh, not only did InterVarsity win this, but the judge uh, is essentially holding the the uh, leadership of the university, the administration, as personally liable for InterVarsity's legal expenses, which uh, appears unheard of. Um, but she had put uh, this process on hold several months ago, and InterVarsity didn't abide by it. They just kind of doubled down. And so they got an earful, basically, in the form of a uh, court decision from Judge Rose. And uh, this is a big win uh, for InterVarsity and for those of us who uh, believe in freedom of conscience and freedom of assembly, both of which are protected by the U.S. Constitution. So, Matt, when we think about religious freedom and when we think about uh, the ways in which organizations like InterVarsity, like Young Life, um, I mean, there's so many, right? I, you know, Campus yeah. Crusade or Crew. Um, sure. There are religiously exclusive organizations that are not Christian. Um, you know, there there are student right. groups that are populated by Sikhs or by um, by people who are practitioners of Islam or, you know, frankly, like yoga clubs. And so. Um, I feel like we only see these cases in relationship to Christian organizations. And yeah. so are, are people of other faiths stepping forward in the same way that we're encouraging Christians to step forward for the religious liberty of non-Christian people? Are, do, are we seeing people of other religious expressions stepping forward when these cases arise? Uh, yes and no. I think it kind of depends on the case. Um, I you know, I certainly saw it in the big picture, in the global spectrum for international religious freedom. I certainly saw people of other faiths join um, uh, advocacy in the case of uh, assaults on religious freedom in, in the most extreme cases. At the local level, I don't see it quite as bright. Um, uh, I do see it. I think this speaks to um, the, the fact that we actually don't see it all that often um, speaks to the fact that we are... Um, really kind of separated and we don't do much multi-faith uh, interaction as as conservative the, uh, theological people. Um, I think that's a muscle that we need to exercise more frequently um, just at the just at the local level and on a, among campus groups um, because uh, we're you know I mean not to be too uh, terse but you know we're stronger together um, across uh, religious lines when we all kind of look out for each other's um, when we all kind of look out for each other's work uh, or in, and freedom right and uh, I've said this before uh, one of the most uh, mo most visible expressions of, of friendship and uh, neighborliness a faith can offer is to step out on behalf of someone whose beliefs you don't hold uh, and defend their right uh, to believe it and organize and, and assemble uh, in the way that we want to also. Uh, so I think we have a lot of work to do on that, but I, I'm, you know, uh, the Beckett Fund who, uh, the Beck, Beckett Law who uh, fought this court case for InterVarsity, they, um, they like to say, I forget their, what their specific tagline is, but basically uh, Anglicans to Zoroastrians, uh, they will protect, uh, they will go to bat for, um, for religious liberty purposes. So uh, we need to see, see more of that, um, and it helps when uh, there already are existing relationships between, uh, say, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Hindu groups on the front end 
uh, before lawsuits um, between uh, supposedly secular organizations start. All right, that's Matthew T. Hawkins. Uh, you can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. Uh, our conversation that we're going to have next is, uh, is another positive story. And what we're going to talk about next is a Christian homeless shelter. Actually, it's a homeless shelter that serves everyone. It happens to be uh, operated by Christians. Um, and it won't be forced to place men in women's areas. Now, that might be stunning to you that that was um, – even a problem, uh, but we're going to talk about the developments in this case next. So that's uh, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now with Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. He's got a really interesting new podcast you're going to want to listen to. It's posted Thank there on his yeah, it's posted there on his website. Um, let's talk about the development uh, in this case in Anchorage, Alaska. As I recall uh, the details of this case, there um, is a man who identifies as a woman um, yeah. who was uh, delivered by the police in in some uh, degree of um, distress, physical injuries included. Uh, and he was delivered to a homeless shelter that's for women, that's expressly for women. Um, yeah. And the women's shelter refused to take him in, and then they were sued. So give us the developments in this case. Yeah. Um, so they were, they were sued, as you said. And I want to back up and say this is a situation that uh, is not – hasn't been – it's actually been probably more common than we realize over the past maybe decade. Um, but you you have these mission houses basically uh, who are set up to serve uh, some some homeless shelters or serve um, uh, you know men and women and children. Others are set up just to serve serve women and children. And as you can imagine, in that kind of situation where you have people staying overnight and uh, sometimes, you know, collective room situations uh, with bunk beds and that kind of thing, um, you you want to keep the sexes separate. Uh, men over here, women over there. Uh, that's not, you know, prudish. That's for the sake of safety of women and children who are especially uh, vulnerable in a, in a homeless situation. Um, and often you're dealing with folks with, uh, you know, mental illness situations um, and uh, substance addictions and that kind of thing. And gosh, you know, if if there isn't a uh, more uh, forward leaning, pierce the darkness kind of Christian ministry, uh, then that kind of homeless shelter, I don't know what is. Uh, but occasionally you have had the situations where. Uh, as you say, a biological male um, is referred to or uh, you know, seeks to stay over at one of these mission ha houses and uh, are disallowed from staying with <clears throat> either in the women's portion or if it's a women's only shelter in the shelter together. And so they're, uh, they lost uh, in August in federal court. And what we have this week is the Equal Rights Commission uh, finally just dropped in a formal way their complaint. This is a big win um, for Christian parachurch ministries. Um, I think I think the ramifications in a good way uh, are going to extend to other parachurch ministries uh, in the similar way that we we see the University of Iowa decision 
uh, that are going to ex- it's going to extend to other student groups beyond <coughs> InterVarsity. Uh, you know, this is all these stories, Carmen. Uh, remind me, as you know, I'm studying for the uh, PhD entrance exam next week. And so to brush up on that, I've been reading a lot of Christian ethics things. And some of that subject matter has included Richard Niebuhr's uh, Christ and Culture book, uh, which is kind of a classic, sadly, apparently not available in ebook. But what he does is uh, re- uh, lay out basically five different ways in which we think um, Christianity relates to the culture. Uh, one is Christ against culture. One is Christ of culture. One is Christ above culture. One is uh, Christ in a par- Christ and culture in a paradox, and uh, Christ the transformer of culture. And uh, we don't really have time to unpack all those this morning, obviously. But I think these situations, the university situation, the downtown Hope Center situation, and the situation uh, of the forgiveness and the Freedom from Religion Foundation, these issues and these moments uh, really uh, culminate in Christians uh, kind of pivoting and toggling between all of those situations, right? So in the in the courtroom um, in, in Texas, you have a, a judge who— um, is uh, on the one hand, there's kind of a paradox. So you have uh, Christianity and uh, the rule of the state in harmony and kind of in paradox. Uh, You have um, the Iowa situation where you have uh, Christians um, against against culture. Um, And I just think it's a pretty fascinating thing and uh, all the more reason for us to remember that we are are part of God's kingdom and all this this temporal stuff is important. uh, And in the long game, uh, we we trust in the God's kingdom uh, fulfillment and then we order our obligations to um, both God and man in light of that kingdom. I I find myself... um wondering, like in relationship to the situation in the Dallas courtroom, I do find myself wondering if uh, if the judge were a Muslim and convictional about their faith, would I have felt, would I feel differently if the judge had come off the bench following, uh, you know, following the sentencing and hugged the, uh, you know, now convicted felon uh, before she went to prison and handed her a Quran? Right. Would I would I feel differently? And I can't make a religious freedom argument if I can't make the argument for either one of those. And right. so I do I do think that's an important conversation for us as Christians to have. Um, really, really quickly, we got a couple of minutes uh, left. Are you familiar with the story of this British actress who lost a job because of her Christian faith? I'm not totally familiar with it. Yeah, me me either. I mean, I I just wanted to lift it up because it seems to be trending online. She's um, she's black and uh, she's very you know vibrant Christian and uh, and apparently she has lost a, a stage opportunity because she she wouldn't ask you know like public forgiveness um, for having simply quoted the Bible um, in yeah. a social media feed. And so, yeah. you know, I, I just think that there are things going on in the world that Christians need to be aware of. I quote the Bible in my social media feed all the time. I don't anticipate I will ever lose my job for doing that, but that's because I work for a distinctively Christian organization um, you you know, that has a Christian have, worldview. You don't have a Hollywood uh, uh, career in front of you, do you? 
Uh, no, uh, certainly well, not. Well, I think yeah, I think these these are these are uh, important issues, and I think you're right. We see the British actress losing her job. I, I'm unfamiliar with, with all the details, um, but uh, it's an example of what was you know happening here is happening here in the states. Uh, I think two, uh, we need to appreciate our form of uh, government and that we have the right of redress to uh, government. And frankly, 2019 has been a really good year. Um, in the U.S. for domestic religious liberty uh, lawsuits for us. So the uh, the Iowa decision was really good. Um, the Bladenburg Cross uh, was defended at the Supreme Court. Um, the Alliance Defending Freedom is winning won this thing uh, the, <clears throat> for the Anchorage, Alaska uh, homeless shelter. Uh, so there are a lot of court decisions, uh, frankly, that are going our way. Um, and I think that's a good sign. So it's... It, evidence again that even after something like the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, uh, we need to engage uh, the process, the civil process that we are blessed with uh, that is unlike anything, uh, unlike most situations around the globe where we actually have a right of redress uh, and it's it's expensive and it's, uh, it's precarious and it takes a long time, um, but I'm grateful to uh, legal groups like Alliance Defending Freedom and, uh, and Beckett and First Liberty, who are on the front end of, of defending this. Absolutely. All right, you and I are going to have to leave it right there. We're going to have to save pronouns for next week. That's Matthew yep. Hawkins. Uh, you can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. You can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Carmen. Have a great weekend. You too. We'll be right back. So my uh, next conversation is with Susan Cadoni. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with, with Susan's testimony, she first offered her testimony of sexual abuse by her youth pastor and then her senior pastor at a Southern Baptist church in Alabama when she was a teenager. She first shared her testimony at the Southern Baptist Convention last year. Um, since then, she has been a very active part of, uh, of the SBC's efforts to not only understand um, how they have failed, how the church, indivi- how churches individually, how the church collectively has failed to protect um, the most vulnerable in our congregations, and how the church has failed when those victims have reported sexual abuse and sexual violence. Um, and so she has been a part of the Caring Well process, the development of the Caring Well curriculum. Uh, she would be the first to tell you that you know, all of the answers are not yet in hand and that the application of these um, of these processes are essential if local congregations and and denominations uh, want to actually see themselves transformed on this front. Last night, Susan offered her testimony here at the Caring Well Conference. Um, you can find that online at live.erlc.com. And it will be posted on the ERLC website as soon as the conference is over so that you could go back and watch the video again. Um, I chose in the time that I had with Susan yesterday to invite her to talk through 10 things that she offered during her, um, during her, I mean, I guess I'll use the word speech. But what she shared yesterday included 10 things that she really wants every Christian and every church to know about what to do in response to the reality of sexual abuse. So next up. Susan Cadoni. She is a professor of technical communication at Mercer University. She's probably one of the smartest women I've ever had the occasion to sit down in the company of. And 
talk through some things. So I hope you enjoy this pre-recorded interview with Susan Cadoni. Are you a glass half full or glass half empty person? Most of the time, I see the glass half full. But there are moments when it's just the opposite. And sometimes it feels like the glass just shattered into a thousand little pieces. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. So what's the secret to being a glass half full person? For me, it starts with gratitude. It's about seeing God's abundance in your life, your family, your church, your friends, and all the spiritual gifts God has blessed you with. It's about recognizing God's provision in your life. Now, I know it may not be easy to feel abundant, especially when things aren't going your way. But look around you and you'll be surprised. There is so much to be grateful for. So fill up your glass with gratitude. It's a mindset that'll help you live a more content, confident, and generous life. So I'm thrilled to be jo- joined today by Susan Cadoni. Um, I'll just describe her as really smart, and then I'm going to let her tell us what she does. I am the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Mercer University, which is uh, where we do faculty development for the university, and I'm also a professor of technical communication. What is technical communication? Technical communication is another genre of communication where you focus on technical writing, production of media for uh, folks who need to translate complicated things into consumer speak. Okay, so for those of you who are listening, um, Susan is going to be horribly, uh, she's going to regret. I'm not very technical. Like my listeners know, I wander around a lot. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your testimony and witness. I have already directed um, folks where they can hear your testimony online uh, and where they can you know, hear you really tell your story. And what I really appreciated about what you did here at the um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Conference, uh, this Caring Well Conference, was that you shared with us um, the survivors' 10 steps to you know, coming alongside abuse survivors. And so can we talk through that list of 10 things? Would love to. So you started with um, that, you know, that you want the church to know and acknowledge that there are many people in our churches um, who have experienced sexual abuse. Why is that where you start the list? Well, I want the, I want churches to know that because we're kind of the silent majority. The Centers for Disease Control have held for a long time that one out of three women and one out of five men have faced some sort of sexual violence in their lifetime. And if you look at the congregation, that's a lot of people sitting in the pews who may or may not have ever told anyone. Uh, And those subjects are not addressed from the pulpit very often. And services are not really provided for those uh, survivors, um, even if it occurred in their childhood. And so it's something I think the church needs to address. We see this a lot as spiritual apathy, but it's really based on trauma. So that's um, that's second on your list. Uh, what might look like spiritual apathy may well be spiritual disconnection. Talk about that. I hear from my friends in the ministry that they, they see a lot of apathy in the church, people who don't want to get involved. They're not working in the church, not volunteering. And my counter to that would be that there are so many people who have trauma in their background whether they've dealt with it well over the years or had good help over the years or not, um, I think instead what trauma does is 
besides the fact that it changes our brain, it impairs our ability to have a real spiritual connection. And so we do become spiritually disconnected. And so instead of spiritual apathy, I think what we're seeing is spiritual disconnection. And if we would reach out to folks who have trauma in their backgrounds and provide a path toward healing, then I think you would see a restoration of their soul and their faith. And then after that comes revival. So again, my conversation partner today is Susan Cadoni. Uh, I'm going to invite you to um, hear her testimony um, online. I have links for that here up today on the website. We're working our way through a list of 10 things that Susan really wants churches to know and do in relationship to um, sexual abuse survivors. So number three is make mental health a priority on par with physical health. Uh, you gave a great example of this, just in, even in the area of when we ask for prayers. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, talk about this need to bring mental health on a par with physical health. I remember when I was young and my mother had certain health issues uh, that she would only whisper about uh, with my aunts. And they would talk about other people and whisper. The word cancer was always whispered. And women's health issues were always whispered. And now it's like those have become mainstream, of course, but mental health has not. It's not yet socially acceptable. We have to check that at the door when we go into church. And so the example I used was that I I don't recall ever being in a Sunday school class during the prayer request time and hearing someone ask for prayer for surgery or ask for prayer because someone's kid has strep throat And then someone asks for prayer for suicidal thinking or depression. It just doesn't happen. And we have to change the culture. And in doing that, people are, um, I think, going to be a little bit more courageous about asking for help. But we have to change the conversation and how we talk about it. Well, and we're going to get to the fact that we actually have to talk about it. Like, that's a huge part of this. Um, Number four on your list is enact safeguards. Um, And we're going to direct people to the Caring Well curriculum in terms of where they can find uh, ways to enact those safeguards in the life of their church. Um, Number five is use the right words. I want to settle in here for just a moment. Um, What are some of the wrong words when when somebody comes and shares their story? Um, what are some of the wrong words, and then what are the right words? I, I recall that when I was uh, younger, after my abuse, uh, I was told that I had had an affair with. At a four, the, as a fourteen-year-old, that's not possible. No, it's no. There's no. No, I was well below the age of consent, and I, and there was an abuse of power in play uh, when Jeffrey Epstein was. Um, still alive and there were lots of publications about him i read in one where he had the the reporter had talked about him having sex with young girls Mm. that's that's sexual abuse it's rape um we don't use those words um we use euphemisms in the church like it's bad judgment it's a reaction to stress um pastor just has too much to do um but in reality what they've done is a felony and they need to be arrested and indicted and jailed. And and oftentimes that's not what happens. Churches don't take responsibility. They don't take responsibility for what has happened. we got to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Susan Cadoni and I are going to continue through this list uh, of 10 things that as a sexual abuse survivor in the church— Susan wants us to know, as the church in the world today, these are things she wants us to know in order that they would become things that we would do. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. (music) 
continuing my conversation now with Susan Cadoni. She works at Mercer University. She's a really smart uh, engineer. Do I have at least that you're an engineer? Am I'm I not an engineer. Oh, see, I do. I, I make, pretend I make to be one. Up. I work in an engineering school. You work in an engineering school. There you go. All right. Technical communication. It's all this technical stuff. Okay. Um, let's talk about taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that this would be, if I were to pick one thing that the church has comprehensively failed to do, this would be it. So what does it look like when an abuse survivor goes to their pastor or to someone else in, in church leadership and shares that abuse has taken place. When we say the church needs to take responsibility, what are we talking about? Well, the church needs to report it and let, let the civil authorities handle the criminal aspects of that. But following that, the church needs to deal directly with the person who's been abused and their family. Uh, and I think the church needs to take responsibility for their spiritual healing as much as possible, give them a path towards spiritual healing help them understand the damage that this trauma has done and that it may do over their lifespan, but reintroduce them to a God who loves them and who knew them and had nothing to do with what happened and is greater than the evil that occurred. I think that's really important. Um, I think it's something that uh, doesn't happen for a lot of people, and I think it lends itself to the spiritual disconnection that you see. Number six on the list is report abusers no matter what, no matter who they are, no matter how influential they are, and remove their enablers. Um, I, I'm not sure that everyone will understand the concept of who the enablers are of people who commit sexual abuse in, in the life of the church. So can you talk about both of those things? I, I think that uh, all abusers have to be reported to the police. Sometimes abusers are not if they're a person in a position of, of really prominent influence. Uh, and then you have a secondary level of enablers who are people who protect abusers because they don't want something dealt with in the church. They want to deal with it in the, uh, or they, they want to deal with it in the family of the church. They don't want to report it to the police or they want to excuse the person who did it. And I think the person who protects uh, or enables an abuser is as guilty as the abuser themselves and practices a secondary form of evil. And I think they should um, maybe not be reported um, as much as just known that and, and removed from a position of power, if that's the position they're in. All right, so we're at number eight on the list. Change the culture regarding mental health. I think this is connected to uh, number three on the list, make mental health a priority on par with physical health. But how, how this process of changing the culture regarding mental health, what do you have in mind there? The culture regarding mental health in the church is really poor right now, and it's, it reflects the, what it is in the mainstream culture. Uh, again, it's, it's something that we're embarrassed to talk about. And if we come to church and uh, we have a a physical illness, it's okay to talk about that. But I know plenty of people who don't talk about or ask prayer for or ever bring up the fact that they have a family member suffering from bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or anything like that. And so I think we have to change the culture by making it acceptable to talk about those issues. And also uh, we need, I would love to see, Uh, pastors who are going through their training in seminary or really any potential staff member who's going through training to take courses uh, that would prepare them with the language of mental health and destigmatize mental health because it's so much more common than we realize because people don't talk about it. 
it's incredibly common. And actually, m- most of those families just aren't in church. It's like the right. highest percentage of un- unserved or underserved families by the church are families who have uh, an individual, you know, within their family who suffers with a mental health condition. So it's it's a huge concern and issue. All right, number nine, listen, which we should like pause there. Listen. And be willing to talk, which, you know, for for the church, we're talking about sermons. Be willing to talk publicly. Be willing to address this in ways that are going to be impactful. Um, but the listen part is critical in number nine. So talk about the listening and then talk about the talking. When someone comes forward to report something, that person needs to be listened to thoroughly. They need to, to have time and space to explain what happened. And then there needs to be a conversation about it. Uh, and it needs to be a no-holds-barred conversation, but a gentle one. Um, and from there, uh, I think that there needs to be more common public conversation from the church about this issue, about sexual abuse, and really about all forms of abuse and all forms of trauma. This is just not something that is preached about very often, and I think that it should be more, because I think it would uh, allow more people to come forward if they heard it from the pulpit. Um, I think of the woman uh, who Jesus, uh, you know, she experiences the miraculous healing of this, you know, suffering that she's been enduring for for 12 years. And I recognize it's not sexual assault related, but she has suffered for 12 years under many doctors, right? And Mm -hmm. under the the religious leadership of the time. And Jesus, when he stops, I love I love the part where it says, you know, she told him everything. Like, right, he listened to her, even Mm -hmm. though he had some other urgent ministry business going on, you know, right then with Jairus' daughter and all that. All right. So um, do not be afraid of us. That's the way you articulated number 10. Do not be afraid of us. I think this is this is so critically important. Um, It's there is a fear. It's odd. It's strange. There is a fear of having these conversations. And and so talk to us as a sexual abuse survivor and make make the appeal for the church to not be afraid to listen and embrace and converse and dig around in stuff that we would prefer not to have to talk about. I talked to a police officer a week or so ago, and she was telling me um, when she heard my story, I wish I had been there and I wish you could have told me and I would have gone after those guys. Uh, she said, I see this all the time. And in the church, we're we're just not used to seeing it, hearing it. And I think that's why the church is afraid to really dive into this issue and take this on because it's messy. It's uncomfortable and it's awkward to deal with survivors. And I think that we, if the more afraid we are, the more afraid we make them of ever asking for help. You are, uh, you self-describe as a hopeful survivor. That's one right. one of the things that I uh, that sort of springs out of your testimony to me is that although the church clearly failed you, and the, and and you rightly lost faith in the church, which I love the way you describe the, this redemptive, restorative experience that you're in um, with your home denomination, um, but it doesn't seem that you ever lost faith in God. So I want you to talk to people who have experienced sexual abuse right now, they're listening, and I want you to assure them of the God you know who sees them and loves them. If you've experienced sexual abuse or any other form of trauma, 
I will tell you that I imagine you probably never lost your faith. You probably still believe in God, but you may have lost the vibrancy of your faith. You may have lost the excitement and the comfort of your faith. But God was there before what happened to you. He was there during what happened to you. And I can tell you that he saw it and he wept. And he's still there now waiting for you to turn back to him and trust him again. And I can tell you, based on my life's experience, that he can be trusted. Mm. Susan Cadoni, thank you so much for who you are and your testimony and witness. Thank you. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So these are challenging topics and challenging conversations. And I know that some of you are thinking for a Friday morning, this is, uh, wow, um, Carmen has not only taken me deep, she's plowing, she's plowing me. So if the conversation that I just had with Susan Cadoni or the one that I'm going to have in the next hour uh, with Megan Live, um, if it is leading you to recognize some things about your own past um, or things that you have known are there but have never shared with anyone else, um, I, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to tell your story. And I want to encourage you to find someone safe to tell your story to. You are loved. You are seen. Um, what happened to you in the past um, matters. And uh, and healing is possible. Wholeness is possible. Um, you can live. You can live in a freedom from that particular um, shame that you're feeling right now. And so I just want to. I want you to be aware of that, and I want you to reach out today. Um, you can always do so. Uh, you can. Send me, me an email, and we'll get you connected with a with a ministry in your area. My email is carmen at myfaithradio.com. You can check out the live stream today at live.erlc.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.